Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, what's up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm your moderator, Keisha, and this is how we do it. If you, uh, I'll keep an eye out for questions in the chat. Drop them anytime, and if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or I can ask for you. We're also going live on YouTube, so if you're logging on over there, post your questions, and if yours gets picked, we will cover it during the show. We got Seth in studio, and Jason is coming in via satellite for vacation. Gentlemen, how are you today? <laughs> It's our 75th episode. Can you believe it? That's awesome. crazy. Yeah. It's it, was crazy. So, it was so good. We got Jason to tune in remotely on I vacation. Know, yeah. yeah. And his dog is back there. Kager, he might have a word or two to chime in on. Um, but <laughs> Kager isn't the only special guest we have today. We have the Cookies University class of 2023 in the house. Welcome to all of you. Nice to see you again. All right. Well, let's start out by going around introduce yourselves how about uh, give us your name and where you're from see honey when we start alphabetical order Alrighty. Uh, hi, my name is Siani Rodriguez. Um, coming in from Las Vegas, Nevada. Actually, cookies on Flamingo in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, yeah, really excited to be here and really excited to see my classmates again. Hi, my next. I think so. So my name is Malik. I'm from New York. Um, currently in Humboldt. That's why I'm dressed like a farmer right now. But I'm <laughs> excited to be here, and I'm looking forward to this. My name is Menez. I'm from Maryland, but right now I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, I'm just happy to share my experiences with Roy. Hey y'all, I'm Wendy. I'm coming out from y'all. I'm coming out from um, San Diego and I'm excited to hear from y'all. Cool, cool. We're uh, stoked to have you guys here today. Um, so did any of you have much cannabis growing experience before? I mean, let, let's back up. Maybe you want to tell us about the cookies program and cookies you and what, what your experience there was like, what you took away from it. Um, I'll just pick someone here. Malik, say something. <laughs> All right. Um, well, because I went to Cookies U, that's what I'm still doing here in Humboldt. Um, after the program, we were um, allowed to decide if we wanted to stay or not. So I decided to um, actually come, I mean, stay a little bit longer and get some hands-on experience and um, kind of just um, you get more of a feel for how everything was done. Um I enjoyed our experience. I felt like, um, you know, not only was it a cohesive group of people that all got along, but um, just um, even the people out here, you know, me and people from who've been doing this all their life and being able to pick up gems that you normally wouldn't just get off of YouTube or, you know, it's nothing like actual hands-on experience. Absolutely. Um, anyone else got something to add? Siani, can you give us an, yeah. a little summary of what the Cookies University program uh, is like, what it's involved? Yeah, absolutely. So pretty much us five, um, and really the next class of candidates, those five, uh, we all meet up in San Francisco, drive all the way up to One Log uh, Garberville, where Cookies U is held, 
And we really start just head deep in first. Uh, We do classroom and actual hands-on license training. Um, So you really get the best of both worlds, starting from the history of cannabis cultivation uh, to actually working in the greenhouses, actually working in the nurseries, um, even planting the outdoor plants. It's very, very intensive and very thorough. Um, I think we've all kind of found our own nice little paths. Um, And it's really amazing because even after the program, they're helping us with job placement, resume help, um, just still helping build these connections. So it's a really full encompassing program. Awesome. Manez, well, tell us about your experience up there. My experience was great. I'm from like a big busy city going to Humboldt and just learning about something that I love learning about was just amazing. It was peaceful. It was like, I always tell people it was like a weed vacation. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned the most important part was I learned so much about cannabis cultivation. And last but certainly not least, how about you, Wendy? How was your experience? It was awesome. It was just an awesome experience being able to get be so hands-on with the plant. I've had like experience with the plant on successfully growing it. <laughs> so it was nice seeing like, you know, what mistakes I made and how to correct those errors and yes, how to successfully um, go out with lucky harvest. So that was already fascinating and I feel like I've really grown as just a consumer, a cannabis consumer as well. Um, being the agreement, I gained like a greater appreciation for the plant and like the cultivators and just every step that goes into the plant. And then Jason, since you spent two days with everybody walking them through a whole lot of stuff, like give us an idea of what you covered. Yeah, so we were pretty early in the um, the session where I had a great opportunity to get down there and um, share our knowledge, uh, obviously specifically mostly doing um, plant biology type of introductory get get the ideas around why we're doing the crop steering that we're doing um really jump started into some of the technology that's being used so we had thermal cameras and uh wind denominators ph and we started playing around with uh, volumetric water content getting an idea of how the terrace 12 is reading that and why that's important to, to measure it that way looking at nutrient contents and so we did two full days of sessions um Hopefully they were enjoyable. It seemed like uh, I thought it was successful because no one fell asleep and they all passed their quizzes like rock stars. So uh, we really did, we focused on the scientific and the, the techno- technological side of uh, how do we interact with plants, right? You know, humans obviously have incredible senses, um, tons of abilities, but by using some types of electronics and um, databasing and, and just starting to understand what type of tools that we can use to get even better visibility than our own hands our eyes, our senses, our smells, that type of stuff. So we had a great time down there. Um, I know all the students came in kind of thinking about their most interesting pathway in cannabis. And I'd love to hear from them. Uh, you know, did that trajectory change um, just by getting you know, a really deep dive into all types of aspects in the industry? Or are you still on the same path that you wanted to, to hit when the class started? Um, I, I feel like I'm on a completely different, I think, um, entrepreneurial rise, like I'm still on the same exact path as far as wanting to, um, like build establishments and build, um, businesses. But I thought, you know, at first when you guys were here that I was just going to, um, head right back to New York and just like, you know, dive right into it. But, um, 
definitely being here and just seeing how day-to-day operations are, seeing um, what it's like to actually, you know, go from seed to sale. It's definitely made me want to actually be a lot more hands-on with the plan and actually have my own grow going as well. And I, I was trying to find my solace because I have it somewhere around here, but um, <laughs> I think I put it in my suitcase because it's definitely going to still like I being here. I finally see exactly how um they utilize the Arroyo system because everyone here uses it heavily. And um, so now they're very thankful as well to actually be gifted this solace because now I know exactly how I'm going to actually use it when I get home. Nice. It's uh, it's kind of one of my favorite things is to be looking at greenhouse data and so obviously down there cookies they got a pretty nice environment through the the summertime and still the dynamics of trying to work with mother nature is the unexpected sometimes comes through every day so that's that's so good for you to be in there uh what they're on their second harvest this summer right now um yeah yeah we just um harvested we just started harvesting the greenhouse the other day started um with the tahitian line I see. I see. Iraj just joined. Yeah, Iraj out there harvesting yesterday with them. Nice. Well, you got some of the best teachers in the industry to be doing that. So oh, for sure. For sure. Sucking up the knowledge. Most definitely. Oh yeah. There's there's nothing like greenhouse growing to really sharpen your your cultivation skills. You have to deal with so many different variables every day. Um, I, I loved learning in greenhouses personally, because then you make the move to indoors and you're like, wow, I can control so much. This is, this is not a problem. <laughs> like that's, uh, it's wonderful. I, I got a question real quick. Um, you know, you're talking about kind of the beginning to the end of the program. Did, wh- what was everyone's perception coming in? Cause I know I meet a lot of people in the weed industry that are like really passionate about gardening and then they get a peek into what, you know, commercial cultivation looks like and it's kind of a turnoff. And I, I don't think we'd be talking if you guys were totally turned off by it, but were any of you like surprised at some of the, uh, the scale and different things you saw happening on the commercial level? I know I was definitely surprised because I wasn't really expecting much coming to be honest. I, I was still even making up my mind whether I even wanted to come out here or not to humble or not. But when I got out there and I learned all the information, I learned it completely like, it was worth it to me just based off of the knowledge and the connections I made with everybody. So it definitely like surpassed my expectations for sure. Gotcha. You probably felt like I'm going to go learn how to, how to garden weed a little bit. And now you feel like you can run a weed factory. Almost not quite yet. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me too, like I came into the program not really like I grew I have a monstera at home (laughs) um and that's like the breadth of my plant growing abilities and they were like oh it's gonna be all encompassing and I'm like yeah but we're probably just going to like exclusively learn how to grow weed like in a greenhouse setting um I know they fully went with everything and before like even especially with the uh royal little class sessions we had I always just kind of thought it was a lot of people just like kind of like going like that with the plant being like, oh, I feel the vibe. Maybe it needs more potassium. Uh, <laughs> like just more, like less of the like scientific um, like side of it. And then we got there, they're like, oh, crop steering. We want to look at some Excel data sheets and some charts and graphs. Uh, I was like, wow, this is like really intense. So it really helped to give a greater appreciation of how broad the cannabis industry is. 
how about you, Wendy? Has your direction, like what you started out with when you started in the program changed since graduating? Yeah, so since graduating, well, when I first came into the program, I'll say that I was more interested in like, I first wanted to run like some sort of like fully integrated uh, farm. But after actually seeing the lot, like how it's run and like the full scale of this, it, acts, it like definitely made me take a like step back and really think about and evaluate my, what I really want to do. And what I figured out like throughout this program was I'm really interested in just the educational aspect of it and providing other people with the knowledge that they need to be successful. So I think that's where I kind of saw myself succeed in is just providing others with that same knowledge that sometimes it's really hard to understand or hard to get to. So just being able to be that resource is something that I, I plan on doing now. That's amazing. Definitely consumer education is, is crucial. I mean, ex- legalization is expanding, but that there are a lot of people who really don't understand how to use the plant. Um, Siani and Menez, how about you? How, how, when you started the program versus coming out of it, how have your goals and your aspirations changed? Uh, I still have the same goals and aspirations. I feel like I have more goals and aspirations now. Like at first, I never really like thought that I could see myself focusing on educational content. But now, like, that's something that I'm more interested in is, like, spreading knowledge about cannabis cultivation because, like Wendy said, I feel like there's a lot of people who are not educated on, like, the different aspects of cannabis. I think it's important for people to know that. And then for me, too, uh, when I first started the program, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I know I liked compliance, but also I had done like graphic design work and I'd worked a lot in retail. So it was like, I don't know where I'm going, but the more I started learning into compliance and like all the laws and regulations and all the little loopholes that you could find that was when I was like, yeah, this is it. And one thing that's kind of hard to do in the industry is have stable job security um, and that's one thing they are very open about, you know, it's, it's still a very burgeoning market. Um, and so with compliance too, I see a pathway to sustainability for my profession. So it definitely helped kind of steer me and solidify me into where exactly I want to go into. Amazing, exciting stuff for all y'all. Um, all right. So everybody got a solace. Malik is his solace is not within reach, but let's talk about your experiences with that. You have Seth and Jason right here, ready to answer any questions you have. Anything you're seeing that you need a little bit of support on? Um, I, I haven't, so being here, I've been able to see how they utilize the, um, Arroyo data and, um, yeah, just like being able to, like, what I think is going to be interesting is seeing how, um, people like trade that data along or like maybe how cultivators go and, um, like, I feel like I, I was talking to Iraj about this. I'm like, I feel like you could host like zoom classes and like kind of, like go over Arroyo data with it. Cause like things on um, like, even just chatting with Iraj and then just him showing me like how he decided to make a decision to um, like start shortening um, the irrigation for the plants, like during those hot days. And just like kind of now, you know, kind of seeing um, what the difference in drybacks like actually do and understanding more so of 
the different substrates and how those actually um differ versus because you know before everyone's just thinking oh weed is weed and you just pop some seeds in the ground and there you go but um actually understanding how um from strain to strain things change like i remember we were talking about the bernie hana butter that was um growing out there and just um learning that you know that requires like a very specific dryback and so um yeah i think like as, as my um as everyone else was saying, like, you know, Menez and Wendy, how important it is for the data and the information to get out there. I think that's going to be a huge game changer, just having an understanding of, you know, what's required for each strand and being able to build community off of that information as well, I think is going to be major. Absolutely. I mean, you need that. You need data to grow your business. And as you guys, I'm sure have seen, I, I, I imagine this group of people has been into cannabis, not just for the last six months, but a little bit before that, you know, now that we're moving into the future of weed, um, quality is the name of the game, right? It's not just throw up a warehouse and grow a bunch of bulk and make money. Now it's competitive. You've got to have the best product you can possibly produce for the market. And that's where some of those nuances come in, right? Malik, you're seeing like, Hey, this strain, we've got to replicate it this way. Uh, not just because like, Hey, what's a, what's an acceptable yield or anything, but now we're looking at product consistency, right? You know, you guys are seeing that, especially working with a company like cookies that faces some interesting challenges where they're trying, you know, if I take one cut and grow it in Humboldt, I want it to grow the same, you know, I want the same bag product in New York, right? Okay. Well, we can't, we really can't do that without data. You can get close. You could replicate and use the same kind of lights or, you know, similar controls and stuff, but unless you have data on that level, you can't, you know, I mean, Malik, how, how much would you be out there at the Solus trying to measure drybacks if you couldn't get time series data on that? You know, no, be- seriously, like you'd be lost in the wind. And, um, like even, even this morning, I think, um, we were having a conversation cause I was, um, speaking on how, like, you know, um, purple weed, like for the longest of time, like it was always a myth that, um, like, you know, you get it by just, um, you know, making it cold in your grow or something like that. But then like this morning I'm chopping it up with high rise. And it's like, no, like, you know, you can, you can get that from different reasons. Like just like keeping your plant on longer and things like that. But, um, just being able to share with your fellow cultivator, like, Oh, hold on. How come you got that result? And it's like, Oh, hold on. I see how you were irrigating versus how I was irrigating. And like that right there can be a complete game changer to some, you know, like those little things, like you said, um, consi- consistency across the board, I think is going to be the biggest thing moving forward. And um, those tools are definitely going to be something that I think everyone should have as part of their, um, you know, toolkit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard to make decisions or even communicate some things, you know, if you're on the phone with someone and you've got a different, a different brand or even batch of cocoa pot, <laughs> you know, you, know might, you might both up. think you're watering the same way, but then we look at the data and go like, well, one of you is uh, getting a lot of channeling going on or massive amounts of runoff compared to the others. So even though we thought it was a comparable run, now we know it's not. And we can start to make decisions based on that, which, which did we like better? Yeah. Cause I was in the nursery and they were um just talking about how like, um, they, they had switched to like some tuber for a little bit versus like the cocoa they usually use. And you know, that little change right there was changing how the, um, like the, the water level content and the exact, like how they were actually like maintaining and holding the water. And so it's just like, you know, you may think, okay, I'm just making a simple decision. Like I'm going to, um, cause you know, like you said, cookies, like they have to do everything at scale. So like if you're, you know, making a decision like, okay, I'm going to save a thousand dollars 
colors by switching to this, but then you mess around and, you know, now have to water 10 times more. You're like, oh, damn. Like, so, you know, um, yeah, being aware of all your data points is definitely key to, I think, maintaining that consistency and running a successful business. Yeah. I mean, if anyone who's been in the industry long enough can definitely attest, like before data, we had good runs and then every once in a while it was like, or everyone would have been that good except this, this, or this happened, right? And then 21 runs later, you're like, well, I know the bad failure points I got to look out for, <laughs> but now a lot of this is blended together and I don't know any of those exact nuances that gave me that one really good run. Or conversely, like, and that's the other thing too, usually if plants start dying, we can figure that out, right? <laughs> but figuring out optimization is a whole different game. I love how you brought up the the fact that, hey, we could save a thousand bucks here, um, but that thousand dollars is without looking about the downstream consequences of that change. And I worked with so many cultivators that guy, every, every run they're trying to, to cut a corner on some costs and then they're just chasing their tail for years until they get some stability. And so being able to, you know, diagnose this stuff on a large scale, you know, looking at harvest groups next to each other, harvest groups after harvest groups, um, that type of stuff is really where they begin to build SOPs that hopefully they can follow from the top down. Um, you know, a lot of these bigger companies, they're driving those cost cutting savings from uh, management positions. You know, they're saying, hey, this is what you need to use as directors of cultivation or cultivation managers. And then when the, the product is different, uh, you know, it's kind of this, this miscommunication where it's like, hey, you know, this is what we need to grow consistently. Got to run the same thing we did last time. If we are doing some R&D stuff, let's let's tweak one variable. Um, we can't mm -hmm. cut costs all the way across the board. And in the end, you know, it's, it's like, you know, what do they say? Buy cheap, buy twice. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's a lot of times what happens when you're working with either supplies or, or cultivation equipment. Oh, yeah. yeah, and just to, and just to clarify, I don't think um their decision was based on a more so price. It, it is an R and D facility, so a lot of that is um R and D. I was just like just throwing that out there as an example, like you know, like you said, you make that one little change, thinking you're saving here, and then like it ends up like you know costing you. But yeah, like I, I just wanted to clarify, like that they are R and D. So like sometimes a lot of those decisions are just made, you know, made made based on just you know trying to figure out the best way to do things. That's what's so good about doing R&D trials is sometimes you find something that works a lot better. Wendy, you want to chime in here? Oh, you're muted. Muted. I just had a question on the actual, like, solace itself. So I've been using it to track some plants because um, we actually were able to pop some seeds up in Humboldt during cookie view. And since I live here in California and we drove down, I was able to bring three of them with me. And they survived the trip. They're doing amazing. But um, my question was just if y'all have any tips on how to monitor, like how to monitor or keep data for the solace, since it doesn't like automatically do it for you. Like, are there any tips or like, you know, anything on that or like, like anything that we should be looking for specifically in the data? To, like, yeah, any tips on that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Go ahead, Jason. Building out a, you know, Excel framework. Um, and then also think about, hey, what, what times a day am I available to go make those uh, solace checks? And trying to do that regularly. So the best times to make solace checks are right before you irrigate. Um, a little bit after you irrigate. So say 10 to 15 minutes after your last irrigation. And then also before lights off. 
Uh, so that's going to give you at least three data points per day that are probably most important to understand. Here's my photo period dryback. Here's my overnight dryback. That's obviously going to be the type of irrigation that you want to reset at field capacity. Um, and then it also give you the nutrient correlations. So what are the dynamics in my nutrients when we do add water or when the plant has dried back? So um, basically I would also try and do the same plant or the same few plants, obviously, your sample size is three. So if you can, it's probably worth doing all three of them. Um, and just have column for plant one, column for plant two, column for plant three, and maybe even, you know, sub columns, EC water content, I'm guessing your temperature, the substrate you've got under control. So that may not be worth documenting. A lot of times you don't know things are worth documenting until you actually have them. So if it's an easy entry, just stuff it in there. Um, and then obviously row by row, just do, you know, each day into three times and, you know, what you can do as well is just after you've got some data, start making a little chart. Um, you know, it'll be time series data. You'll just have a lot less detail or resolution in, in that time series than something like the connected system. You just described my old career, Jason. <laughs> Turning spreadsheets into graphs, man, day after day. One thing I want to add to that, too, is, uh, you know, I, people like Jason and I, especially when you've got a tool like the Solus, it can be pretty tempting to go out there and like, I'm going to take a reading every hour. Like why? Cause it's, it's right over there, you know, but really when he was talking about like before and after your P one nailing that we want to hit that because it's simple, right? We now can easily calculate how big those shots need to be and not get lost in the data. I, I think that's really important. Um, there's a, there's a tipping point, you know, we want to record as much data as possible, but if it starts to take away from, the other things we're doing in the garden, that's, that's kind of the limit. And your three plant sample sizes, obviously probably not that hard for you to take care of, but you know, if you're running around sticking plants in a 5,000 square foot facility, there, there's a breakover point between you can capture enough data to be useful, but you can't physically capture enough to do population statistics. And that's kind of where I think as growers, we got to look at like, it's always a balance between what I'm doing with my hands and the uh the the set points that i'm achieving um, there's there's a fine balance there and you don't want to spend too much time focusing on either one and that goes back to right like i'm sure a huge thing you guys learned is being proactive rather than reactive in the garden right a lot of us if you've grown at home before at a small scale never really get out of that reactive phase you know you never hit that point where you got your environment just dialed or your irrigation to not break or whatever and uh i think that's that's something that's really cool about going through a program like what you guys did because you could see everything and actually apply it. I think, think that's one of the hardest things. Like myself, having gone to school for horticulture, I have plenty of friends who have the same degree as me who are not in horticulture now because they didn't like the commercial nursery industry or some other facet, and they just didn't have or take the time to really immerse themselves before they got into it. Thank you for that. really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. That was a great question, Wendy. Menez, did you have a question about the Solus or anything? I really don't have too many questions about the Solus. I just, uh, I guess, like, I really just can't imagine not being able to use the Solus, like, in the grow after knowing the information that I know now. Like, I just don't understand, like, how previously, like, I feel like it, it seems like it was just hit or miss with people, like, like they were saying, sometimes they'd get a bad harvest and sometimes it'd be good. But now I feel like it's like we have the information to make sure that the harvest come out good every time. 
That's the power of data, right? All right, Siani, go for it. Yeah, just to like even further elaborate on like what Manez said, it was really funny like experiencing the Arroyo because like I work like just in retail compliance mostly, but like if I were to jump into cultivation, which this conversation, I'm like, you know what, maybe I should pick up a cultivation more time. But just like thinking about it, I was like, man, we got to experience like the Lamborghini of like data record keeping uh, with like the Arroyo and like the whole Excella system. Like we got like keys to the Lambo. And then I can't imagine like going to another place and they're like, oh, sensors are used to sensors. Well, and then it's like, oh my God, I am in a 1983 Pontiac, but not a nice one. Yeah. I think one yeah. thing, a lot of the community, the cannabis community hasn't really wised up to yet that you kind of, well, number one, we, we look at craft cultivation we try to say like, oh, this is just hands-on touch and feel. Uh, what a lot of us kind of overlook is like, there's another industry that's very craft. It's called wine. Um, you know, grape growers have been using, utilizing crop steering ideologies for years, utilizing technology like leaf parameters and soil potentiometers to know how dry they can get that soil and stress those grapes so that they can get more sugar content without splitting the fruit. Right. So I think there's just kind of this idea out there that because you're using technology, it's no longer craft or there's no longer like the growers touch input and I think turning it around you know you guys realize it like hey we treated these different strains differently but we just use this technology to quantify that so we can repeat it and that's I think difficult and some people feel threatened coming out of the garden and going into the farm I guess is the best way to put it you know it's not you you do not have enough time in the day to go pick up every pot you don't have enough time to get eyes on every single thing if you are you know directing this cultivation where you've got thousands of plants per employee you've got to embrace you know systems adding on to that um siani you made a really interesting point even though whether you decide to go into cultivation or not just having this information you're so much more informed than a lot of policymakers, for example so you understand a lot of the nuances of what goes into the production side of things. So whether you're in compliance, whether you're in retail, whatever, you're, it's informed by that knowledge. So I think that also speaks to the importance of this, this type of education. Um, getting a full, complete overview is just like uh, beneficial in all kinds of areas in the industry. Jason, over to you. Yeah, you know, I think one of the really fun parts about Cookie Do is the fact that obviously you guys had a lot of different perspectives, um, but I don't know exactly how many different instructors you had, but the different communication styles gets you kind of an introduction on, hey, this is how people see the same industry in different ways. Um, a lot of times everyone's actually right. It's just either what part they've been into or just how they communicate. And so I think, you know, obviously, Knowing that Aurora can build a block of communication across different cultivations like that, um, you know, like Seth was saying for cookies, if you know if that information needs to transfer across the country in order to grow the same plant, here's the data set that talks about uh, the recipe. Um, obviously, in traditional horticulture, there's a ton of different fruits and vegetables that come with the crop steering right on the the seed package. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of hopefully where the industry is going. If I'm buying a strain, then this is how I need to grow it. Um, and then kind of on the education part that, that you guys were talking about is, uh, you know, when, when we think about how people 
can harness technology. I was fortunate enough that I came in with a very good technological background and being able to utilize, uh, have my access to these types of tools, you know, what Teros 12 was before Arroyo, um, a nice database of compliance information to start making predictive analysis on our crop cycles. Uh, all of that type of stuff is, it gets you a huge head start. Uh, it, it allowed me to kind of super accelerate my learning of the plant itself. Um, it's like, all right, here's the data. Now I can understand the biology behind the data. Uh, you know, here's the data set. If I see an anomaly, then I can try and explain that anomaly, which is great. Uh, it kind of actually made it easier than vice versa when we're thinking about, hey, if I'm just always looking at plants, uh, you know, I don't necessarily have a cue on what aspect it was. So I have to analyze all of the, the growing. Whereas if I'm looking at specific data, I know that this was affected and then I can dive, dive right into that. So um, kind of thinking about, our, you know, what uh, Malik was saying with uh, being able to be consistent, if we can also start to be so consistent that we can do predictive sales cycles, uh, it helps everybody downstream. If we know which crops are the most profitable or which plants are the easiest to grow, we can start to score our strains. And when we've grown scored strains, you know, say five, six times, we can have this pretty solid uh, information about, hey, this is how much crop we're going to have in six months. This is how much crop we're going to have in a year. And what that allows you to do is your marketing teams to connect with your sales teams and get an understanding of here's how much we're producing, here's what we're producing, and here's what needs to get to the different shelves of different um, dispensaries. Yeah, I'll say there's no no better way to lose dispensary customers than not fulfilling an order. <laughs> when you pre-sale and then go, ooh, we had a bad crop, guys. They're not happy. Never are. And I think uh, just kind of to, to continue what Jason said, um, when you're growing with data, you can learn so much. And one really cool thing is the fact that if you're working in this industry, um, there's a few people still doing full term outdoors, so they're not cranking as many crops. But most of us are cranking, you know, four or six. I mean, some people are harvesting every week, right? That's pretty common in a larger cultivation space. You have so many chances to learn. And when you have this data and time series data being collected automatically, hey, if I harvest every week, that's 52 runs in a year that I can look back and learn and have, you know, provided I can stabilize my environment and eliminate variables. Or even if I can't, 52 runs worth of data to look back on and go, oh, hey, we had high humidity in this room, low humidity in this room at this time. There's a lot you can extract from that. And just like Jason said, really, really accelerating your learning curve. And uh, that's... Luckily, that's just the way the industry is. We're cranking it out. Go ahead, Wendy. I had a question regarding just, um, so while at Cookies U, we got the chance to learn a little bit about EC. It was like one of my first times, well, not first times, but I remember hearing about it, but not really like knowing too much about it either. So like being introduced to EC again, and I still have, kind of have this like confusion about it. What exactly, like, I know it's electrical conductivity, but like how exactly does that affect my plant? And like what range should I be aiming for if I'm, um, for instance, I'm uh, currently planting um, in soil. So like what should my EC range for that be? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, electrical conductivity is, uh, it's actually being measured by the, uh, how many salt ions are in solution, right? And so I always like to think about, all right, like, you know, Gatorade is an electrolyte. Uh, we could measure the EC of 
Gatorade, right? Um, it's just got you know, potassium ions in solution, other types of things that help our muscles from cramping up. Um, for the plant, obviously, we're looking at macro and micronutrients that are going to be those um, negative and positive ions in solution. And so what happens is with the Terrace 12, it's passing an electrical signal between the prongs, and that signal is calculating uh, basically the capacitance between um, the different prongs. So that electricity uh, at a different ratio of salts is going to make the sensor read higher or lower. Um, you know, if you want to have a fun experiment at home and you like electricity, you can actually, uh, you know, like run a light bulb through a salt solution in water. And the more salts you add in it, the brighter the bulb's going to get. Um, so definitely something that maybe you don't want to do unless you're used to electricity. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but that's the kind of stuff that I would use to learn about it hands-on. Um, my mind with that one. <laughs> so the, the more salts in solution, the, the better it passes electricity. If we actually look at RO water, um, it's, it's a good isolator, which just means that there's no electricity being conducted through that solution. As we add minerals, nutrients, um, anything in that uh, is going to be an ion in solution, then typically that's going to go up. So electrical conductivity is just a measurement of how many of those salt ions are in the solution of if irrigation. Um, and then to hit the second question you have there is what ranges do you want to be in? Um, this is probably why time series data is so very valuable is because when we're looking at these ranges, um, you know, after irrigation or during irrigation, maybe we're feeding it, say, 3.0 for a very modest uh, irrigation feed level, um, which is pretty easy to calculate because it's obviously in in solution. So there's lots of equipment on the market that can measure ECN solution. Uh, but ECN the substrate it's going to be different and it's going to be much, much more dynamic. Maybe we're always feeding at three EC. Well, when we feed, whatever the EC in the block is, it's probably going to start dropping closer to three. A lot of times, you know, we'll see it at say four or five when, um, when we're irrigating, it's pushing some of that, um, solution out of the bottom and, and getting closer to our feed irrigation. Now, after we hit a hard dryback, that plant's using up typically more water than nutrients. Um, unless you're feeding it at too low of nutrients, then it'll be using up both fast. But typically it's using more water than nutrients. And so you're going to see your EC start to rise. And the rate that that EC rises has to do with osmotic potential or osmotic differential. And that's one of the main things that we use for crop steering. Say if we have a lower osmotic differential, that means that the plant cells aren't going to swell up quite as much. Um, we're going to be signaling a more generative balance towards that plant. So it's going to be decreasing its node spacing. It's not going to be stretching as much. If we have a less change in the EC, say, you know, let's say it's at four or five, right? When we irrigate, and maybe it only gets up to six or seven um, by the time that we irrigate the next day. Typically that'll be a little bit more vegetative response. And what's going to happen is when we look at um, the Tugger pressure in those cells, it's going to be greater because of the greater osmotic differential. And it's going to signal the plant to stretch, make roots, stems, stalks, and plant infrastructure material. Yeah. So to answer your range question, typically we want to see, uh, you know, a three or a four up to anywhere between like an eight and a 12. Um, but the thing to rep remember is like you mentioned soil. I would probably look at that bag and look at, okay, and, you know, it said soil on it, but soil doesn't come in a bag. Soil develops on the ground and has distinct mineral 
and organic horizons. Um, so it's important to look at that and go, okay, what am I dealing with here? Is it a peat moss based mix? Is it cocoa based? Does it actually have any cation exchange capacity? Because if it doesn't have a high CEC or much CEC at all, then we're dealing with, you know, running something more similar to cocoa. Uh, and then also if you have organic amendments, that's another thing to remember is like, Hey, I've put in this, uh, uh, different compost, manure-based compost, let's say, I know that's going to take so long to break down. So that's going to affect, you know, if I'm doing a hybrid hydroponic and organic type setup, I've got to remember that I'm, you know, I've got an, in, an initial nutrient load that I'm dealing with and I don't want to accidentally crank it up too high with my hydroponic feedings. Um, Menez, what were you going to say? Uh, the question I had is, it was in relation to EC2. So when you look at like the nutrients, uh, the back of the nutrients, like the feed schedule, it gives you like a particular amount of nutrients to put in. But like, um, could you explain like the adjustments that you would need in the nutrient concentrations when you're applying like crop steering techniques? I mean, I think the most important thing to understand is how to relate EC to PPM because PPM is going to, that's how you're going to figure out how much salt you need to dump into your reservoir, right? Parts per million. Um, in terms of that, what you want to be able to do is adjust your actual inputs higher or lower at an even ratio. That way, when you say, okay, I'm mixing, the bag says to mix to a 2.5 and here's the instructions. How do I go to a 3.0 and make sure I'm actually still continuing to hit that ratio? And, and I think that's what's important. And in relation to EC, I think one thing that's kind of, it gets a little heady for people because, uh, you know, we're years ago, we were all using PPM meters, right? Um, well, those meters actually were pulling raw decisiemens and converting that. So, you know, when we're talking about EC, it's just a more raw and relatable data set. Um, that's why I like to see it out there. We've all, we've always been looking at it. It's just getting your brain set to the right, uh, uh, a scale bias, basically, you know. Gotcha. And then also, yep. don't mix up your ratios too much. <laughs> there's there's some good science out there that's made a lot of these fertilizer programs. Um, I know I'm not usually able to outsmart them. There's some little tweaks I'll do, but usually there's good products out there to work with. Cool. Thank y'all for those questions. All right. We're going to, let's move on to the, the answering some viewer questions. Y'all ready for it? If, if any of y'all are like, oh my God, I know the answer to that. Feel free to chime in. All right. So we got this one. Somebody wrote in asking, will Arroyo still work for me if I'm growing in 10 gallons? Seth and Jason, thoughts for this person. I mean, I've seen Jason do it or rather dug up the sensors he put in and left there for a year or two. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you want to explain Jason, go ahead. Um, it will work. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the Taros 12 is designed originally for large fields, uh, field crops. And the, I've buried them at one foot, two foot, three foot deep um, for doing subsurface irrigation. So they will work in any size media. Um, there are some caveats to think about when you're using a 12 gallon or 10 gallon pot. Uh, that is the you know, Taros 12 has a one liter volume of influence. Um, so you're thinking about, you know, a size around those prongs that it's measuring. And when we get into a really large pot, we have to think about the gradients um, inside that pot. And, you know, when we're in uh, a potter, a planter, those gradients are going to be both uh, horizontal and vertical. 
I did that backwards, but you all understand. Uh, basically, what's going on is, you know, if we have a, say it's a mesh bag, a lot of times things are drying out as we get farther from the center of the substrate. Uh, same thing. Usually as we go up in the pot, things are drying out faster as well, just because of exposure and then obviously gravity, the, the water table building up at the bottom of the pot. And so, you know, just making sure that you understand that if I have a good sampling of my Taros 12, if it's installed in a spot that represents the average water content and the average EC, then it's going to function absolutely fantastic as far as representing what's in that pot. Um, and actually to go back into to the field studies, when we're doing Taros 12 installations, we almost always do them at a gradient in the soil so that we have an understanding of, all right, when it rains, maybe I only got an inch of water penetration before things dried up. Um, or maybe we had a really significant rain two or three days ago, and we can see that that water is moving through the soil. It's time to either add some irrigation today to try and make sure that our, our upper root zone is um, being irrigated. And a lot of it has to do with uh, where that root zone is as well. So if you're, you know, got a plant that you just transplanted from, say, uh, cocoa four by four or a, a rooting plug or whatever um, those Terras 12 breedings may not represent what's in your root zone and so you have to keep in mind that you know developing that root zone and placing that Terras 12 is going to be some of the main things to make ensure that your data is most representative of that plant yeah i think it's good to bring up right now the way you know uh meter group actually went on developing those in installation heights i mean basically that, that uh, the installation tool was created by physically measuring the media and then using the readings we were getting to match that up to a point where our reading is representative of the sample size, right? We're using energy to measure volume. That's never going to be a really perfect reading and we've got to really align it. But like in your 10 or 15 gallon pot, let's say, the important thing is that you're able to get a reading and see it. So you can start to determine, okay, day after day, I'm seeing a, a 5% dryback, which might even be big in a 10 gallon pot, but it's important to not go ahead and look at like someone else's data with their mom in a two gallon pot and go, well, why am I not getting a 10 to 20% dryback? Like, well, let's just look at the actual volume of water. 10% of a 10 gallon pot equates to, okay, that plant has to pull a gallon of water out a day. Well, we're talking about a pretty big plant that can pull a gallon through a 10 gallon pot every day. So, you know, kind of got to look and then factor in like is your is your sensor placement absolutely perfect probably not so what we're looking for is relative trends that we can actually make decisions based on it's it's more about not being blind to what's going on at that scale than it is to say like this 10 gallon pot has exactly this much water in it at that size we want to make sure it doesn't get way too dry and we also want to make sure it doesn't get stagnant, that we are actually watering it at a regular interval and getting some oxygen into that pot. Well, on the subject of pot size, Taylor just dropped a question here. They write, what pot size of cocoa do you like for crop steering? We have a 12, 15, and 19-day veg period, depending on stretch, to maintain an even canopy across strains. Currently using two gallons. Should I move to one gallon? I think that highly depends on your plant size. You know, the way we should generally look at it is we'll review a run and go, okay, we know what a uh, generative irrigation strategy looks like. We know what the vegetative strategy looks like. We've defined the uh, parameters that those exist in. When we go back and review your irrigation data, have you hit, when you're coming into ripening, week seven, eight, eight, nine, 
um, are you able to actually run a generative strategy? So if you can't run a truly generative strategy, basically P1 only within a two hour window, then you might want to move up on your pot size in order to get a little more of that ripening availability. Uh, that's that's kind of where we draw the line on one to two, and it's going to be plant size and strain specific to an extent. However, at a certain point, you probably have to pick one. That's going to be the standard in your facility. And if your question is between one and two, 12, 15, and 19-day veg period, the one is probably okay, depending on how big your plants get. If you go to the two, that's going to give you the freedom to go a lot more generative. And with certain strains, especially some... Uh, People like to use the term exotic, <laughs> but basically anything that's not super standard in its growth patterns will end up running a lot longer generative phase in both the beginning and ripening because some plants don't respond to bulking in a way that's desirable. So, or to the same amount of bulking that other strains will get. So going with that two gallon is going to allow you to focus more on quality with the caveat that you might not be able on certain strains to put as many of those bulking signals in there and really drive that yield up. Amazing. Thank you, Seth. All right. We're going to keep it moving. We got some questions in from uh, YouTube. I'm going to ask this one from Josh real quick. Josh R. writes, Seth mentioned using a bleach solution for clipping sterilization. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on dilution strengths. Go for it, Seth. <laughs> if you can get from 0.5 to 1.5% bleach, you're usually good. Um, and it depends. Are you talking about just bringing some clones into your facility to sanitize them? Or are we going into tissue culture? with these particular plant samples. And in most cases, bringing them in with a 0.5 to 1.5% bleach solution is going to be fine for a dip. Make sure that you dip appropriately, you know, 10 to 30 seconds, usually closer to 30 seconds, and then dip it in deionized or RO water to wash some of that bleach off. Thank you for that. All right, keep it going. Dylan just posted here in the chat. Hey guys, if I'm not getting a 10% daily dryback in week one of flower, what would you recommend for irrigation? So it's going to depend a little bit on whether our plants are just transplanted at the first day of flower or if we have begun rooting them in, in veg. Um, so if those plants have been transplanted in veg, uh, you know, hopefully that first week of flower, you are saying about a 10% dryback. Uh, if you're not, and they are, you know, mostly rooted into their new substrate, make sure that you're only doing P1s. Um, you know, make sure that you're not stretching out your irrigation window more than at max, say, one hour. Uh, mm -hmm. Another thing to keep, keep in mind there is maybe we're just going in that flower just a little bit too early for that size of plant. Uh, obviously, if you are going into a, a height restricted area, say, you know, double or triple tier. Um, and that's the size that you need to flip at. You might consider what size of media that you're working with. And that's like what Seth was saying earlier, when we are working with mixed size of media, or you really just want to get um, some concrete evidence on what our 10% dryback really means as far as effects on the plant, just convert it to water content, or excuse me, to um, total water. And you can do that with obviously just 10% of a one gallon. It's going to be, 0.1 gallons of water um, in, a, in a dry bag like that. Now, conversely, uh, if we have just transplanted, say we've got four by fours on slabs, or we've just gone from cocoa starters into a one or two gallon, that, you know, say flip the first day of flower, uh, or transplanted the first day of flip uh, flower, then you're probably not going to see a 10% dry back unless, you know, you haven't moved your sensor into the new media. And usually we talk about moving that sensor into the new media so that we can get an idea of what water content the roots are trying to grow into. 
Um, and so that'll be kind of a rooting in type of irrigation. And usually rooting in irrigations are just simulating root growth, making sure that we're bringing fresh nutrients and oxygen into that media and encouraging the roots to follow the irrigation to fully engulf their new home. Yeah. Just to, to further on that too. Um, you know, one, one thing I like to do would be that rooting in strategy, giving it really small shots, not bringing it back to field capacity, but pulling some oxygen into the block and promoting root growth on a day by day basis. So if we're not hitting that 10%, we'll go smaller irrigations, ride that dry back line down over a few days, then bring it back up to field capacity. Um, had something else to say, but I totally forgot it while Jason was talking. <laughs> yeah, Dylan actually added a little more info here. Veg for two to three weeks and one gallon cocoa. Would you bring to field capacity daily? Can you repeat that again, Keisha? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, veg for two to three weeks and one gallon cocoa. Would you bring to field capacity daily? In a, in a healthy situation, that's what we're trying to do for sure. Um, oh, I remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Everything Jason said all determines on like what's your um, – that, that assumes that we've got healthy incoming plants, right? If we go all the way back, you know, every day past cut, if anything's wrong, we're th putting grams on – you know, we're throwing grams out. That's just the way it goes. I've personally been in a situation where I needed to revamp my cloning uh, because my clones and, and a good marker is, you know, if you can't, if 14 days in, you can't get a tray of healthy rooted clones going, you've probably got a problem. And then I've seen situations where it's like, Hey, we, we waited three weeks to get these clones to root. And it's like, ah, you should have thrown them, thrown them away a week ago and started over because those ones are unhealthy and you're going to be trying to baby this crop all the way through. And you're never going to recover that yield because in that timeline, the plants just can't perform. And that's what we're all about is flipping that crop over, trying to make this as efficient as possible. If every crop has a slightly different length, just because we can't get that consistency down in the beginning, that's also something to look back at. Always chase, always chase your problems backwards in the life cycle of the plant. Counting backwards, something I do all the time. All right. Taylor posted in the hangouts just now, can't I run a better gen steer in a smaller pot size? than a larger pot size in reference to my last question, but you're suggesting my bulk veg steer won't be as good with the one gallon versus the two gallon. So let's, let's just back it up here. When we're talking about generative versus vegetative irrigation, right? If we want to accomplish all of our irrigation in a generative steer within a two hour window in the morning and let it dry back 22 hours, we need a bigger reservoir, a bigger gas tank to drive with, right? If the gas tank's half as big, we can only dry back half as long before crossing a threshold towards, you know, a temporary wilting point. So basically the bigger your media is, the more generative you have the capability of going, you know, a lot of old school growers would use five, seven, 10 gallon pots, water them, you know, once every other day in the beginning and at max, maybe two times a day ever. Well, that's pushing your plants pretty generative the whole way through. And what we would see from that is, Hey, I got a three and a half to seven gallon pot. I've got a five foot tall plant in it and the yield is okay, but the quality is amazing. Like, okay, well, you found the, the easiest gray way to grow good bud for yourself. But, you know, when we look at that media size versus the plant size and then, you know, how we're able to manipulate it, we don't have much room to water it vegetatively in that big pot because we're not getting enough dryback to keep putting as much water on all day and really stimulate that bulking behavior. 
So that's kind of the choice. You know, the smaller the media you go, the more you have to water throughout a day. More irrigation cycles equals more vegetative. And with the bigger media, we can go with generally fewer irrigation cycles and push that dry back. So like I said, there's always a happy medium. And when you're trying to make these decisions, you really need to look at, too, what your, what your goals are. You know, there's, there's obvious extremes. Like, I wouldn't personally go back to a three-and-a-half or a five-gallon pot uh, unless I wanted to be really, really lazy and I didn't care about my yields, <laughs> you know, just for pure forgiveness and ease. I'm in there dumping a pitcher of water on it every day or every third day, maybe who knows. But in this commercial setting, you know, in a business where we're trying to make money, really matching that plant to pot size. So we have full control is where we want to be. Cause inevitably you've got, you know, market demands. We're always changing strains. <laughs> That's always an issue, right? Okay. Well, we can't in our facility efficiently make too many variations on our growing process because at a certain point we either can't run two strains in the same room if they behave that differently or we're actually not making money because we're spending so much time and money trying to accommodate these finicky plants. So finding that happy balance and then, yeah, having that control. So, you know, for instance, in a one gallon pot, you might have a strain that just does not finish well at the size that you're flipping. And then, you know, we can chase that back and say, hey, we need to flip smaller plants and adjust plant quantities. Or instead of changing everything about your entire production schedule right now up to flower, let's just switch the pot size. You know, we've, we've, we have the data to say we've run out of room in the one gallon. You know, at the end, we can't go generative. Let's just switch that. And then that's a smaller change, easier to accommodate. Simpler. That's at the end of the day, keeping it simple is part of, part of the key to success here. If you have too many failure points in your system, you're, you're dooming yourself. Every decision matters. That's right. Um, all right, y'all, we just got a few minutes left. Our crew here, Cookies U students, before we wrap up the show, give us a, a glimpse into what you're, what's coming up next for you. Where's the journey going to take you at this point? Let's start with Siani. Yeah, well, I'm at Cookies on Flamingo. Uh, we have an amazing staff and team over here, uh, like bud tenders, some of the sweetest and most knowledgeable um, management. We're really here for the culture, the plant, and the people. Um, so very exciting. You'll be seeing a lot more if anyone coming down to Vegas uh, wants really good cookies, really good vibes. We've got Cookies on Flamingo over here. Malik? So, um, hey, shouts out to Siani out there doing her thing. But um, for me, I think next is um, just um, I'm here in Humboldt until harvest. So, like, my goal was to just pretty much stay and soak up as much knowledge as possible to be able to, um, you know, help everyone. Like, as we were saying earlier, you know, the information is important. Um, not too many people even know, um, you know, how influential the Arroyo system can be to them. And so, um, yeah, coming out here and seeing, because, you know, like you said, um, it's mainly used for commercial usage. And um, in my opinion, it helps you make a lot more money. You know what I mean? And, and to me, like, that's the goal is to, you know, be consistent, make money. And um, I want to eventually head back to New York and just, you know, build an ecosystem of um, just mixing creatives with, like, I think I said this before in the interview, like, my goal is simply is to just help everybody smoke better weed. And I think, um, you know, as we spoke on consistency, that is going to be a big thing. And achieving that goal and going back home and um, 
creating an ecosystem where people can come and just like create and kind of like a um I don't know in my head it's kind of like this concept of like a stoner's library where you can just come have a membership and just like you know pick a strain out for the day and um you know what I mean like have so it's like a consumption lounge but also like a work from home space and um so that's hopefully what's next after spending this time out here in Humboldt Malik is making my dreams come true. Amazing. Hey, pull up to New York. We're going to, you know. <laughs> How about you, Menez? So, uh, since I love Cookies U, um, Cookies, they helped me develop logos and uh, start starting to do some marketing for my cannabis brand that I'm working on right now. Uh, right now, I'm focusing more so on uh, the clothing aspect of things. But in the future, I'm looking towards, like, white labeling. And right now, I'm currently doing the female hunt to try and find maybe my own strength, possibly. And then also, uh, I've been shooting educational content um, about cannabis cultivation. So hopefully in the future, I'll be able to edit that and post it on the YouTube so that it'll be available for other people to use. Don't have a fold OG. Looking forward to trying that. Wendy, and how about you, Wendy? So since leaving Cookies U, I have actually kind of found this new passion. Um, I'm actually in the process of building up my own website. And on that website, I hope to just educate and be a platform for like any cannabis, anyone interested in cannabis, really, Um, like whether it be beginners or people who call themselves connoisseurs, you know, like all stages of it. Um, I just want to educate and just spread um, more awareness of the plant and just speak a little bit more on the science aspect of it while still like touching on lifestyle and like culture. So I hope to be like some sort of platform as well online, hopefully soon. And that's all in the works. (laughs) Amazing. All a lot of goodness going on here. So just please do share with us. Keep us posted on your journey. Siani, Malik, Menez, and Wendy. And then shout out to Noah who couldn't join us today, but we are, he is here in spirit. Thank you, Cookies University Class of 2023 for coming on to the show. And honestly, congratulations. We got, we got the future of the industry is sitting right here on this program right now. We're, we so appreciate you. Uh, an amazing partnership. Um, and then, of course, thank you to Seth and Jason, as always, for dropping the knowledge and to our producer, Chris, for another great session. Thank you all for joining us for this week's Aurora Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroya, book a demo at arroya.io. One of our experts would be more than happy to walk you through all the ways the platform can improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours, post questions anytime in the Arroya app. Drop your questions in the chat or on YouTube. Send us an email to sales at arroya.io or DM us. We are on all the socials, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. We want to hear from you, and we'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video and post it on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.